Okay, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Mark Patterson. I'm a faculty member here at the law school, uh, teaching antitrust and patent law uh, and contracts. Um, and uh, we have a terrific panel here um, of antitrust practitioners who also have uh, experience in uh, cases involving antitrust and various IP rights. Um, all of the, maybe not trademarked, but, uh, but if you look at their biographies on the uh, bio sheet, um, at least patent copyright and, and trade secret expertise is up here, and I would imagine there may be trademark expertise here as well. Um, and so uh, you have, you can see their names here, I will introduce them just briefly, but you have their bios in front of you. Starting to my left, we have David Hecht, who's a, a Fordham uh, Law grad, at, now at Steptoe Johnson, Michael Saltzman, who's at Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed, alas, not a Fordham Law grad. Um, Rick Jeffness, who's at Shipharden in Ann Arbor, Michigan, also not a Fordham grad. And fortunately, though, we have bracketed them with David Reichenberg, um, who is a Fordham Law grad and is at Wilsonson C.D. Goodwich and residing. So um, I am going to, uh, I hope, turn this panel over to them in just a moment. But uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the IP guidelines in this panel, the subject of this panel is uh, the revision of the antitrust agency's guidelines on uh, the interaction of antitrust and intellectual property. I'll just say a little bit about those. And so for those of you, particularly students who, who uh, are more familiar with IP than with antitrust, uh, there's uh, antitrust concern with market power is obviously implicated by uh, IP rights in that uh, the granting of statutory monopolies might create economic monopolies and economic power and thus bring antitrust into play. Um, so I'll make a pitch for my antitrust class, although I hesitate to do that in a room with so many people um, because I don't want the class to get enormous. Um, but uh, you know, if, if you're interested in IP and thinking of practicing in IP, I think the panelists will, would agree that uh, antitrust is a very important uh, course, because it, it, particularly for patent law, because it uh, helps define the limits of what you can do with your intellectual property rights. And for a long time, uh, antitrust was very hostile to intellectual property rights. Um, and uh, more recently, it's become much more uh, accommodating. Um, but uh, the uh, agencies then, um, in this, the antitrust agencies, that is the US Department of Justice and the uh, US Federal Trade Commission, obviously state attorney generals have an antitrust role to play as well, but as do private parties. But the federal antitrust agencies have, over the years, issued guidelines in a variety of areas for uh, describing how they enforce antitrust laws. So there are merger guidelines, there are healthcare guidelines, there are guidelines for collaboration among competitors, and in 1995, they issued um, intellectual property guidelines that outline how they view the relationship between antitrust law and intellectual property and how they view the limits that antitrust might place on certain uses of intellectual property. Um, so they discuss in the guidelines a variety of issues from mergers to uh, horizontal agreements among competitors to vertical licensing practices and discuss how the agencies analyze those issues and they create some safe harbors for uh, certain kinds of practice, particularly licensing. Um, they also have some interesting discussions of the way markets are defined in these markets. They discuss competitive concerns related to 
products that incorporate IP or that depend on IP with uh, competitive issues that relate to the technology that is the IP itself, typically patents often, and, uh, and also just R&D markets, that is markets for research and innovation that haven't yet developed into technologies. And so they, they adopted these uh, guidelines in 1995, and so that was 20 years ago now, and obviously, if not the law, the law has changed some, Markets have changed more, probably, and so the view is that it is time for, has now time for a revision of the guidelines. Uh, so the guidelines revisions have been proposed. Uh, whether they respond effectively to changes in the markets is, I think, one of the, and to the issues that are prominent now in antitrust and intellectual property, I think is one of the areas that, we'll, uh, that the panelists will discuss today. So. Um, so we, we have to acknowledge that this is just huge news that uh, you know that the revision of the IP guidelines has become a you know a widespread internet meme and so we've agreed that we will not right, talk about any of the viral videos related to the uh, to the revision of the IP guidelines because we don't want to interfere with the, with the next panel so we'll leave that to them um, so I'm going to start by asking. Uh, how we feel about, how, how panelists feel about um, whether the guidelines have responded adequately to changes in markets and uh, what they, just generally what they like about the, uh, the revisions in the guidelines, what they might have liked to see but do not see in the revisions in the guidelines and, uh, and uh, just pass this on. I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to do this in order of uh, who, tra who traveled the farthest to get here. Um, so we'll start with uh, with Rick. Uh, good morning. Uh, glad to be here. So uh, something that Michael was mentioning was um, that some of you may not be all that familiar with antitrust law. And of course, teaching antitrust law and practicing in antitrust law, I I think it's it's probably worth reminding everybody that under Section One of the Sherman Act, any agreement with a competitor that unreasonably restrains trade violates the antitrust law. Now, you probably have spent some time with a reasonableness standard, and the fact is a lot of uh, federal courts have also spent time with that, trying to determine what that means. For decades, the federal courts have tried to figure out what's reasonable and what's an unreasonable restraint on trade. The fact is, anytime someone agrees to license intellectual property, <laughs> there's a, a good chance that they're making an agreement with a, with, a, with a potential competitor or an actual competitor. And so it could be challenged under the antitrust laws. And this is one of the reasons that we had the antitrust guidelines in the first place on IP licensing, because it became such a big issue. And then, of course, Section 2 of the Sherman Act prohibits a monopoly, which is what you legally get when you get your patent. You get a, a monopoly. You may not actually have real market power because there may be competing technologies in that area, but it, it's worth understanding that really antitrust is the flip side of intellectual property, or you could think of it as IP is really the exception to the antitrust laws. Um, the, uh, I think there's, with respect to the guidelines that came out, if you take a look at them, you'll see there are some, um, they try to put out a safe harbor provision where they say, look, 
we, the FTC and the DOJ, we understand that IP licensing is almost always going to be pro-competitive. And the reason is, if I actually get my patent and I have the right to exclude anybody from practicing it and I've got a monopoly, if I license it, I'm spreading that monopoly around and if I have less power, there's going to be more competition. So presumptively, they wanted to cut in 95, they wanted to come out and say, look, presumptively, we want you to know that we will not be challenging uh, IP licensing agreements because we recognize that they are generally going to be pro-competitive. So they tried to put out, they even tried to put out a bright line rule where they said, look, if you've got 20% of the market or less, and you enter into a licensing agreement, really of any kind, where you uh, can do things that would typically violate the antitrust laws, things like you agree with your competitor who you're licensing to, that they will only market the product that they're licensing in a particular geographic area or with a certain uh, price point, uh, that's going to be fine, so long as you don't have more than 20% of the market, which means you don't have real market power, and to the extent that there are any competitive effects, they're going to be offset by the fact that we have increased competition. So that's fine. The fact is that if many of the people who have intellectual property rights um, have figured out lots of very clever ways to utilize them to actually cause the real kinds of anti-competitive effects that the antitrust laws are concerned about. So for example, one of the better known cases uh, of patent pooling were, is a case where two companies own the two competing technologies for um, laser correction for the eyes. And they said, hey, well, we've got the two patents. Let's, uh, let's put them in a patent pool. And, uh, and then what we'll do is uh, we'll break that patent pool out into a new entity, and that entity can license the patents. $250 per procedure gets paid back to that entity and then we'll split the profits. Now this looks like this could be pro-competitive, so long as the, uh, the patent pool, anyone that wants to go in there and license and then do these procedures can do it and pay the $250. Everybody pays the same amount. It's available to everybody. The problem was, was that these two competitors said, and by the way, the patent pool isn't going to license to anyone but us. So now it's price fixing. You've got two competitors who said we're going to charge $250 per procedure. Um, because you've got so many clever people out there, the antitrust guidelines are understandably incomplete and don't provide as much guidance as people would like because the DOJ and FTC know people are going to figure out ways to create the kinds of monopoly rents and the kinds of anti-competitive effects that benefit themselves um, and, uh, and they don't want to essentially write a way, write a rule that would be overturned by a court. Um, and the courts continue to struggle with ways to um, actually lock down on these policies and lock down on these practices. So uh, in short, the antitrust guidelines aren't as they don't give as much, as much guidance as people would like, and they can't really, I think, accomplish the, um, the task yet that they want, which is really free 
uh, open licensing of intellectual property and actually spur that innovation without the risk of antitrust proceedings? Does that answer your question? <laughs> as you like, thank you. Um, and so I think Michael's next because uh, he's covered his way downtown. Uh, sure. The, I would say the new revised the proposed guidelines that were announced in August are really just um, a consolidation of what was done in 1995. They're, rather than uh, take up the case law and the academic research that has taken place over the last uh, 20 years uh, uh, in particular areas, uh, which I'll mention in a second, the, the guidelines themselves are really, the, the new guidelines are basically the old guidelines with a few uh, minor changes. Um, I think, um, and, and they rest on the three pillars, I would say, that were the same as, as the old guidelines, namely that uh, intellectual property should be treated for antitrust purposes like other property, neither discriminated against nor favored. Uh, uh, second, that patents, copyrights, trademarks don't necessarily uh, grant uh, market power, and so you have to look case by case as to whether uh, someone who holds a patent does or doesn't have a have market power because there can be competing technologies. Uh, and third, that in general, as Rick mentioned, licensing in general is a good thing because it allows uh, complementary factors of production to be used together. So that. One thing, and you're making, uh, let's say, on the uh, software to be used in a car, and it's a car manufacturer, you license that software to the car maker, and you can make a better car than either the car maker nor the owner of the software patent could uh, do by themselves. So uh, the new guidelines take the same things that were in the old and just uh, polish them up. Uh, there have been about two dozen people who commented on the draft guidelines right now, they're in draft form, and those commenters fall into several categories, but there's one set of commenters that uh, said you should, do, you should have done more or you should do more because there's been a lot of learning since 1995 that's not reflected in the guidelines, uh, and there are other people who uh, uh, want to move it in a different direction. So the, the, the commenters on the guidelines are kind of interesting, interesting to read. Uh, one of the areas that the courts and the um, academics have written about a lot is uh, an area of pat, uh, uh, called uh, standard essential patents, where um, to make a cell phone, let's say, or to make a cell phone work, and, have different companies' cell phones be able to talk to each other, they have to be common standards. There are standard setting organizations that coordinate that so that an Apple phone can talk to a, a Samsung phone and so on. And in the course of those setting those standards for phones, uh, where the, often patents are involved, uh, the courts and particularly the Department of Justice have been very interested and the FTC in making sure that people don't uh, secretly uh, get their patent put into a standard and then be able to charge a monopoly price or not, in fact or discriminate and say I'm only going to license one person not another. So there's been a lot of uh, activity, academic and in courts, about why, about standard essential patents and what the rules should be for those. 
and people have been clamoring to put that in the guidelines. They're not in the guidelines. Uh, another big area that's not in the guidelines, the Supreme Court uh, uh, recently in the activist case um, discussed uh, what's been going on, a uh, common practice that grew up in the pharmaceutical industry uh, of, uh, called pay for delay, where a, someone who, uh, a drug company that owned the patent yeah, for a drug would uh, pay a generic manufacturer as the patent was about to expire uh, not to uh, enter with generic competition. And the Supreme Court uh, said in the activist case that um, that could be subject to uh, antitrust attack, but under a, a rule of reason formulation, uh, one of the dissenting justices in that case was the chief who attacked that holding because he said that it was uh, a rule of reason inquiry would be too amorphous and the district court would have no idea how to determine whether uh, certain, kind of, certain payments were for delay, for delay or anti-competitive and which ones were a legitimate settlement of patent disputes because it was often these payments were in the context of settling the dispute as to whether a patent was or wasn't uh, valid. And uh, the district courts have gone off in different, uh, so the, the Chief Justice in, in dissent said, uh, good luck to the district courts, how are they ever gonna figure this out? And so uh, that's one thing that the guidelines don't discuss, and uh, that's another area that they could have. And do you think they should have, or do you think they should have waited for, should wait for the courts to develop a little bit more law on that issue? So this is an issue that's now, a variety of questions have, you know, are, are at issue in the courts now on reverse payment settlements. Whether a, a payment has to be cash or non, some sort of non-cash compensation uh, will also create the sort of potential anti-competitive effect that we might be avoiding. And do you think that do you think it's pre would be premature for the guidelines to address that topic now? Well, in one sense, yes. I think one thing interesting about these guidelines, maybe different from other guidelines that the antitrust division has put out is they really are looking at a multiplicity of audiences. And one of uh, probably the main audiences for these guidelines, believe it or not, are foreign antitrust authorities. The uh, one way that the United States uh, exercises its, uh, I'll call it soft power around the world is that uh, what the government does is, is a model for what goes on in many other countries. And so these guidelines, uh, uh, the prior guidelines and other guidelines, have been copied in it by antitrust authorities around the world, uh, but often with tweaks. And, um, and so I, I think the, the Justice Department and the FTC are concerned about sort of going beyond uh, or having their guidelines misread by these foreign authorities. So. Um, Here's what I would say, though, direct answer to the question. Uh, if the, if the uh, antitrust regulators had a clear idea of what to do with the activist decision, it would be nice to know what it was. They wouldn't necessarily have to put it in the guidelines yet, but uh, they haven't really said almost anything at all yet. And call me a skeptic, but they don't want to show their hand the people they're going to sue for these reverse payment settlements, um, and they don't want bots themselves in. So one audience is, 
the safe harbors and one of the ways we can structure these things to evade antitrust scrutiny. And so if, I put, if you were to put out guidelines saying these are the things you're looking for, they provide a roadmap for how to kind of to outthink uh, the way the FTC or DOJ is thinking about it. So I think it's very intentional and it makes a lot of sense to me that they're not addressing it. And there, I mean, it's also interesting that most of the, to the extent there have been government pursuit or, or uh, uh, cases against the reverse payment settlements, they've been FTC cases and not DOJ cases. And so it's possible also that, you know, the DOJ internally has a somewhat different view of these cases than the FTC does. And the guidelines, because David has mentioned that, you know, tying their hands, uh, the guidelines haven't, interesting legal status, which is none, sort of. Um, and they're, they're the agencies, I think they usually describe them as their either a representation of what their enforcement priorities and approach is, but they're not bound by them in the future. On the other hand, if the agencies say this is how we approach things, and then they, as David suggests, try to approach them differently, subsequently courts may not be all that uh, welcoming for a different approach after people have relied on what the guidelines say. But they don't have any official legal status other than as a statement of what the agency's views are at the time, which is why, in part, they've decided to revise them um, after 20 years, though not maybe dramatically. So I, I'm going to have to call you a skeptic on that, because I, I actually don't think they're trying to. I think one of the things they want to do is they, they want to try and give some clear guidance about what they're going to challenge and what they're not going to challenge. But uh, I think what's really happening here is uh, after the activist decision came down, you had, um, and for those of you who are familiar with that decision, this will be a little bit of review, but one of the key problems in the pharmaceutical industry with settling these cases is, okay, he's got a patent for a, a pharma product. He sues me, and I say, no, no, no. You, you can't sue me on that patent because it's invalid. Not only is it invalid, I mean, maybe there's inequitable conduct going on there. You didn't disclose prior art. Uh, and so, you know what, I'm going to challenge the validity of that patent. And if I win, that means anyone can practice it. And I've rid the entire competitive system of this block. And, uh, but... You practice it by yourself for like six months, I think. Well, yeah, so under Hatch-Waxman and all. But, he, but, but then, you know, we meet in the, the smoky back room, and, and he says, look, I know this thing is invalid. Um, how, about, uh, how about I pay you, like, I'll give you a percentage of the profits, which would be like $25 million. I'll give you $25 million for the next couple of years. We'll leave it valid. You'll get your profit margin without even having to make it. And, and suddenly, we've got a settlement that violates the antitrust laws. Why? Because he's paying me to protect an invalid patent. And so this is, this is one of the things that, uh, that activists was, was directed at preventing. Um, at the time that the decision came out, what was happening was people were actually just making those payments where it was, you know, he'd pay me, the, the potential infringer, $25 million. But then they got smart. And they just they said, you know what, that's going to be flagged immediately. Let's figure out some other ways to transfer part of my monopoly rents to you. Uh, and 
as, as that happened, you had some courts saying, well, look, if it's not a cash payment, it's not a reverse payment that falls under activists, and so it's not going to be an antitrust problem. But then you had other courts saying, no, we, it's not the, the form of it. It's not whether or not it's made in cash. The question is whether or not the ultimate agreement is anti-competitive and somehow either protects an invalid patent or prevents competition. And I think with these guidelines, as much as they would like to give us something clear and would like people to uh, feel like they can make certain IP licensing deals without risking antitrust, the fact is they know this is rapidly developing and the people out there are probably smarter than the FTC and DOJ in, in coming up with ways to cause the anti-competitive effects without it being labeled. Rick, one of the uh, interesting things we just did on was the uh, potential invalidity of a patent, and you know, it just brought to mind, I know this is a more antitrust geared panel, but in the patent realm, the America Invents Act has introduced the, the PTAB, well, it hasn't introduced it, but there's the Patent Trial and Appeal Board that handles the new inter partes review proceeding. And so with the inter partes review, typically in litigation, um, the defendant will petition the U.S. Patent Office and the PTAB to invalidate the patent. Um, and what happens is there can be a settlement in those proceedings, but the farther along you are, the Patent Office has only part in front of it. So the system could theoretically, the patent, uh, the PTAB, PTAB can theoretically continue the case and can invalidate the patent. So it was just um, brought to mind that the system, you know, whether it's rules like this that are proposed that don't really have any strength So for those students who are in the audience and who are thinking about going out and practicing IP law, the guidelines are one source of information about what the government does. There's also a lot of speeches given by agency officials. And so the FTC has actually provided a lot of, provided a lot of information over the last few years about their views about reverse payment settlements. And so, and Rick and I were talking, there's, a, there's also another procedure by which you can get information about the from the government agencies, which you can ask them for a formal review of a practice that you have in mind. So Rick and I were talking about, uh, before uh, the symposium started this morning, about a uh, business review letter issued by the Department of Justice on sta a standard setting organization's requirements, or maybe not requirements exactly, but advice to its members on how they disclose and commit to licensing of their patents. And so this gets to an area that David Hecht, who's the next furthest, next most, next most northerly, I guess, uh, office, um, has worked a lot on in the Apple versus Samsung case in particular, which is before the Supreme Court uh, now. One, one aspect. Right, one aspect. Yeah, yes. many, many. That wasn't your aspect. No, that, that was not. So my, my aspect was, uh, I'm a, a patent attorney, um, and I was I got involved with the Apple Samsung case while I was at Quinn, and I quickly got involved from from just looking at some of these technical um, 3G patents. 3G being the standard for LTE that was promulgated by what's called the European Telecommunications Standard Institute, which all of the big players, Samsung, not Apple until recently, 
um, you know, LG, um, any of the big telecom companies, Huawei, uh, participate in this standard setting organization. And so while I was getting involved with the technical aspect of those patents, the framed issues arose and Apple had certain framed defenses because what, what happened was uh, Apple was... Can you explain what framed is? We, we have not, actually, so I'll, I will get into that. So the standard setting organizations, uh, as we mentioned, have uh, patent policies typically. So Etsy, the one I mentioned, has a patent policy that has uh, certain requirements for its members. One of them is that a member needs to identify a patent that it believes is standard to the patent, or essential to the patent, uh, sorry, essential to the standard. So because of that, you have these disclosures um, from companies like Samsung, uh, where Samsung says, well, we have the, the patent on you know, the X part of the specification of LTE, and they say, we will, in, in compliance with the rules of the standard setting body, we will agree to license these uh, patents that we've listed on fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory terms and conditions. And there's a huge question as to what that actually means. There's no formula to determine that. You would think that you know, the most reasonable way you could think of um, determining a quote-unquote frame rate would be to look at other frame rates, to look at what, what's available. And unfortunately, you know, the companies are, are one step ahead and there aren't very many, if any, um, publicly disclosed frame licenses. There were um, headline rates that were released from, from companies that um, back in the, the mid-2000s. And the, those same companies, companies like Motorola, have stopped uh, publishing those types of rates because of the problems they ran into when uh, they, were, they tried serving these patents. So you have um, these standard setting bodies, you have um, engineers attending them. And I was you know, involved with defending depositions of the engineers that you know, were attending these, these standard setting meetings where they come up with the technical specifications of the standards. And those, those people really have no idea. They're not lawyers. They don't know what essential really means. A lot of times they're one step removed from the patent process. Um, you know, they're, they're writing their invention disclosure, maybe answering some questions, but they don't know what's on file, what's in the pipeline. Um, so when someone at the meeting says, well, all members should disclose patents, you know, these engineers are like, great, maybe our attorneys will do it. And so that's, that's one problem with the standard setting bodies. The second one is, um, you know, that we don't know what a frame rate is a lot of times. Um, and because a lot of these big companies will have cross licenses with each other and they'll have a balancing payment, but there is no line in the contract, even if it was discoverable, there's no line that says the frame rate is 2%. And the other problem is you have these standard essential patents that are declared by uh, companies and there is an incentive to over-declare how many patents or which patents are uh, essential to the standard. And because of that, you have you know, this over-declaration problem where you could have a company that just you know, tons, has tons of filings, and um, you know, I've looked at a certain Chinese telecom company's portfolios, and in China, you know, the, the, the other thing, these are international um, groups. Uh, Etsy is European, but um, the, the patents that are listed are can, that are listed by companies include U.S. patents, Chinese patents. So each each country has different standards with which they grant the patents. So there's all these issues, and then leading to the antitrust problem, which is 
if you have a company that asserts one patent, or let's say they sell that one patent that is arguably essential to the standard to a non-practicing entity, and the non-practicing entity or the original company asserts it and says, wait, we have um, you know, 500 other patents just like this, and they haven't asserted them necessarily, but they're negotiating for a portfolio license. And you know that, that's arguably a tying problem because, uh, and sometimes they'll even tie non-essential uh, patents uh, that were never declared because you know they say, well, you should also take our user interface patents because your phones use those as well. Um, so you have that, that's become a big problem. So there's the rate as well as you know how do you break down these patents? What's the relative value? Um, you have Judge Robar. Uh, who did have a, uh, a friend determination in the Motorola case, and that was um, based on hypothetical negotiation and based on some publicly available rates of patent pools, which are um, arguably the, the closest um, in likeness to uh, a portfolio license from a big company. Um, so, before I ramble on too far, you want to give me. No, and I, I, a couple of comments about that. So one of them is that uh, this is related to, I think it's Michael's comment about the interaction between U.S. agencies and other agencies. Because this is such a worldwide phenomenon, I mean, it's possible that that's maybe one of the reasons they were less inclined to have, uh, to incorporate this in the guidelines. Um, although it's interesting that the, the European Court of Justice, or now Court of Justice, the European Union <coughs> last year, Last year, 2015, I think, Huawei. 16, Huawei versus ZTE, pretty much set out what looks like a guidelines approach. It, it set out a pro the, the problem in these cases arises when a patentee with now considerable power because its patent has been adopted into a standard is negotiating license terms with a potential manufacturer of a cell phone or something, and they typically enter into some sort of sequence of negotiations, and the European court set out some criteria for how this negotiation has to go. One of the big issues is whether you're entitled to seek an injunction if you're the patentee, or whether putting your patent into the standard ought to somehow preclude you from doing that. And so the Court of Justice set out fairly detailed steps and uh, a description of a process that involves a satisfactory negotiation as opposed to one in which one of the parties or the other has breached its duty in a way that might implicate antitrust law. And it looks like a guideline, almost. And in some ways, the, so the FTC uh, had a settlement with Google, because Google had uh, acquired Motorola and then had used Motorola's uh, standard essential patent portfolio against Apple in their patent war. And the, that settlement, uh, which is read somewhat like a guideline, is also directed towards uh, the negotiating style that should be followed. And the important thing is, and, and uh, Apple was actually drawn, uh, drawn as a very bad player because Apple did things like, for example, uh, in the Fran suit that was pending before Judge Crabb in Wisconsin, Apple said they wouldn't be bound by the rate that was set by the court. And then in the Apple-Samsung cases in the ITC, Samsung showed that Apple was an unwilling licensee, and the ALJ you know, found that those facts were pretty compelling and granted um, essentially an injunction um, for uh, Samsung on a standard essential patent. So the, uh, the injunction rule, there is no, in the United States, there's no hard and fast rule, um, even a bright line rule. 
but there's um, there's also an issue where I mean I was personally involved with um, a company that acquired uh, some of the uh, Nokia uh, portfolio because Nokia is now uh, really a shell of itself. I mean it was purchased by Microsoft and sold, um, and its patents have been uh, spun off to many non-practicing entities. Um, so one of them took the patents and went after a. Uh, Chinese telecom company and asserted those patents. Sure, not a non-practicing entity being uh, an entity that does not actually make anything and uh, it just essentially exists for licensing purposes uh, to derive revenue from licensing. And in this case, the non-practicing entity had um, asserted uh, patents across the world, but not in the United States. And the FTC might have, and the, the DOJ might not have even been aware that this was going on because, um, you know, when you look at ex parte injunctions that are easily granted in places like Brazil or Romania, um, it's a lot easier to, to get an injunction there. And those courts may not even know what friend is or care what friend is. And they might not have anti-competitive authorities that have any any guidelines or any any they might not exist, but they might not really care again. Um, so there's that issue where uh, a lot of times when you do have a global portfolio, global rights, um, global tying, you could have you know the opposite. You have a company in the United States asserting standard essential patents here, but demanding a worldwide license without uh, going after the, the uh, subsidiaries in other countries. So it, it's uh, and as I said, different standards for different patents and, and different patent systems across the world. So there there are issues. But as far as you know, going back to the rules, the I was surprised that there's no mention of standard essential patents, and especially in light of uh, the FTC uh, and uh, you know the Google uh, settlement, because. And when I counsel clients, a lot of times we'll look towards uh, you know those guidelines. Well, we, I, I actually have interpreted those as guidelines. Right. Yeah. Or anybody. I, yeah. Let me just make two quick points. One is that the uh, in response to commentary about why aren't standard essential patents discussed in the guidelines, the regulators have said in the, in this past month that. There's plenty of other guidance we have given in speeches and uh, through case law, and we are not retreating from any of those positions. So if you want to know what the position is, uh, there is plenty of authority about what we're saying. And you know, if you have a question, ask us. But in fact, we're not retreating from what has already been said. So from the point of view of an American practitioner, if you're in that area, you can't say, I don't know what the government but from the point of view of uh, foreigners, again, I make the same point I made before, the, the danger I think that the US government regulators see is that the concept of standard essential patents has been, let's say, overused potentially. Uh, the Korea, South Korean guidelines until recently talked not only about standards set by standard setting organizations, but also de facto standards, which uh, the Americans are afraid could be used against prominent American companies that, like Microsoft operating system, uh, Qualcomm got into had a huge fund in China on this concept, where something has this a quote de facto standard, and then all of a sudden it's a, uh, using this monopoly position, all of a sudden what 
here is legal has been um, illegal in these foreign countries uh, by taking the American original guidelines and kind of making a slight tweak to them and making what here is okay all of a sudden not okay these are the American guidelines. And for better or for worse, because these issues are so are worldwide, um, it pushes firms to arbitration where they can resolve all of their international claims in one case um, and uh, takes them out of the courts and then the arbitration, arbitrations are generally private and then it gets back to, then we have a license agreement as a result of the arbitration that no one knows about it and, um, and can't determine what the rate was which might be useful to determine what a rate is in some other negotiations and so uh, this is a real problem. What, but we should, I was going to move on to I was just going to say one thing. One reason why um, you might not see in these guidelines, I mean, to your point, it's actually very valid in how I interpreted, you know, the, the important letters and the decisions and, and things like that that came out of the FTC. Um, but one thing is the friend problem, it may not be that big of a problem considering that you, know, you have um, there's decisions like Realtek versus LSI where when um, uh, patent owner did not uh, negotiate before seeking an injunction. Um, the court found that uh, they, they couldn't enforce any kind of injunctive relief. Um, so th these types of things um, have sort, sort of worked themselves out. And the other problem is every standard setting organization is uh, has a different policy. So you know to have a, a blanket um, FTC rule may not be appropriate. Where you know, in Google's case, for example, where you're talking about those Etsy standards were. Um, in other cases, you're talking about a triple E, which is slightly different. Um, yes, David. Um, split in the law on this issue. I don't know if it's a split, or I would call it disharmony. Where the FTC brought a case, it's a company called Rambus in the 90s. Uh, Rambus was a part of a, a Tencent organization that did not license its uh, patents uh, that were eventually incorporated in the standard because they did not disclose them. Was a big fight for whether they had to, had to disclose them. So it went before the commission. The commission said, you had a duty to disclose under the way we read the rules, and you didn't do that, and now you're contending super competitive rents. Went up to the DC Circuit. The DC Circuit said, no, um, you're wrong, because you have to prove that in the absence that a different standard would have been adopted um, in the absence if they had, in fact, disclosed their patents. FTC found it equally likely that even if they had disclosed their patents and there had been a friend rate um, agreed to, that you'd have the same exact standard and there's no problem with a monopoly with a patent holder charging what their monopoly rent is for their patent. On the flip side of that, you have Broadcom and Qualcomm in the Third Circuit. Uh, Broadcom made, in fact, that representation that it would license its patents. Um, went ahead, uh, over-disclosed, as David might argue, all its patents and said, we will go ahead and, and license these. But then Qualcomm sued and said, you're, it's not friend. You're discriminating against me. You're charging me a higher rate because I'm not using your uh, chips that you want to also sell me in your phone. Went up to the Third Circuit. The Third Circuit said, um, if you uh, do not license on friend terms as you promised, that is not only a breach of contract problem, that's an antitrust problem because monopolists can't charge too much for their patents when you're not living up to your, um, your commitment. So I'd argue there's, that a, that a, 
there's disharmony in the, in the law on, the, on this issue, just that there are a lot of cases building on, on those two cases. Um, so to hear to say, I actually haven't read those FTC comments, that we stand by our positions. Well, do they stand by their position that uh, if you don't disclose your patent and then uh, arguably deceive the standard setting body, that would still be anti-competitive? I also uh, think in, in those cases that you mentioned, um, well, first, Rambus, I was involved with the Rambus defense in the, in the ITC, and Rambus was found to have spoliated evidence and things. But, but they also, from what I understand of the story, <laughs> I did not represent Rambus. We represented the respondents, like the 34 respondents. Um, but now Rambus was an interesting company that was was an innovator at one time and became a non-practicing entity. Um, but they apparently uh, had gone, I, in the prior cases that, that I, I know about, including I think the ones you're talking about, Rambus had attended meetings of the standard setting by uh, JEDEC and then had written patents that were directed towards the standard. And so I think that was also the issue where there was unenforceability of those patents because of you know, lots of bad behavior. Uh, and similarly in Broadcom versus Qualcomm, there were some kind of missing documents where at the 11th hour, um, I think the, the, they found out about, uh, I think um, Broadcom found out about Qualcomm's bad acts in not disclosing. So there, there was something more than just, you know, the, the, and you did say not disclosing, but that, that is very important. Or there's also, you know, there's other FRAND-related defenses like um, late disclosure of IPR, which is similar, where a patent holder is arguably trying to hold up the standard by having their technology included, and then after the standard is finalized, then they'll disclose. Um, so that, that's the argument that if, if they would have disclosed earlier, then maybe something else would have been adopted. Um, um, I'll, I can actually tell it, give you a, a, with great power comes great responsibility story here too. So. Uh, when David Reichenberg talks about the Rambus rule, that you have to show that uh, for it to have been a competitive problem, you have to show that a different standard would have been adopted. I was at a small conference where the lawyer who argued this case before the, uh, the DC Circuit, right? It was the DC Circuit. Yeah, Doug Melman. And so, and he was describing this argument, and I, I, I will say this, he did not say that I made an argument and the court bought it, and they really shouldn't have. But my sense was that when he was describing the argument he made and the fact that he convinced the court of this particular position, that he actually felt that this is just my read of his of his comments. That you know that was the court shouldn't have bought that story. Um, but I told it well, and they bought it, and so now it's maybe the law, and so. Lawyers can do good and they can now you can get a sense of why it is that so many antitrust and intellectual property practitioners are disappointed not to see SCP related stuff in these guidelines, which you know it's it's dominated our discussion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you wanted to leave time for so I, I think Sarah was hoping we would have time for uh, maybe fifteen minutes of questions, which we have ten minutes now. So are there any questions from the audience? Yes, over here. So you discussed brand licensing with regard to Etsy, um, which doesn't provide what brand rates would be. Um, IEEE, which does the Wi-Fi standards, did take a step to try to adopt its IP policy to provide some guidance. 
What do you think about having guidelines to prove these standard setting organizations as opposed to prove the antitrust organizations? So that's a, that's an excellent point. I I was actually just reviewing the IEEE. Uh, request and the DOJ response. So the IEEE, they wrote what were very sensible, relatively narrow rules about how to manage these situations where you've got a room of, of horizontal competitors and we're all going to reach an agreement about what we're going to do about the standards and the patents that cover them. And um, uh, they, they took the, the four rules, which um, I was actually writing them down just earlier so that I had them. And they were, you know, you, you can't seek a, an injunction on the patent anymore. The reasonable rate can't include the value accorded to the patent uh, based on the standard. You can't refuse to license to anybody in the supply chain. And you can require a grant back, which um, I won't go into. But they were very sensible guidelines. And there was also a, a, a procedure for a letter of assurance for anyone that actually held patents that before we consider using that as a standard, you've got to sign up this later letter of assurance. They took that uh, procedure for the IEEE, they sent it into the DOJ, and the DOJ sent back a letter, and if you're interested, it, was, it came out February 2nd, 2015, and the DOJ said, yeah, this looks about right to us, which is why I was surprised, you know, look, that it's, it's easy, it's narrow, but the thing is, is that standard setting organizations and what they're dealing with is so different that there really is no one-size-fits-all. And I think this is what the, the comments were before, which is the FTC and the DOJ, they've said, look, there's a lot of the stuff that we've said out there already, so you know, don't worry about the fact it's not in there. You can find it elsewhere. One of the uh, commenters on the draft guidelines is a German uh, organization I had previously been familiar with called Fraunhofer. And Fraunhofer from Munich So they, they uh, in their relatively brief comments, bitterly complain about the IEEE uh, price setting and say that it does not uh, give full value for IP rights. So it's interesting that this is a, the IEEE is not a legal body, uh, but they decide it's not the law. And here someone trying to escape the uh, grip of the IEEE by complaining to the DOJ and the and for those of you who don't think about this a lot, imagine that all of you are horizontal competitors with an IEEE standard, and he over here, he's got one of the standard essential patents, but we all agree, you know, we're not going to pay more than 100 bucks per unit. So now we've just essentially horizontally price fixed in setting his patent as the standard. That's what this complaint is about. But the conclusion that the DOJ reached in with respect to that particular issue was that, look, we, we don't think that this was a bunch of horizontal competitors getting together and you know uh, cramming down on the, the patent holders. There was, there's equal power there. And the concern, too, is that because the IEEE doesn't have any official power here, the, a firm like Fraunhofer or Samsung or Qualcomm that disagrees with the policy could just opt out of the IEEE process, in which case its patents don't get disclosed to the IEEE when it's adopting standard, adopting a standard. And then if the standard, then they take on no obligation for the way they, you know, try to demand royalties or seek injunctions later. And 
without information about what patents are out there, which the standard setting organizations generally need to get from the firms that are involved, if a firm opts out, the organization doesn't have that information, it might adopt a technology that is subject to a patent for a firm that is no longer cooperating with it, and then they are under no constraints whatsoever. So it's a, it's a balancing act. The organizations want to try to impose enough restrictions to make the downstream licensing post-standardization effective at a reasonable price, but to the extent they go too far, organizations can just opt out, and then we're far worse off than we would have been before. Then you end up in a world of de facto standards that I think someone talked about. There are a lot of these de facto standards that exist outside the IEEE, IETF. But I think I think the uh, the danger of you know. After a player leaves, if it was a major player like, like Samsung, um, you know, decides to revoke their membership essentially, and even going forward, I think you'd be hard pressed to have a company like that have new patents that are going to be covered by the standard because they wouldn't be participating in the technical discussions. The big problem would be that anything they have based on past technology, which a lot of times is used in you know, future standards as backward compatibility and things like that, that could be a problem. So it, it's still an issue, but I think going forward, given that you know they're not gonna be knowing they're not gonna know what's on the cutting edge in the standards body anymore, that would be less of a danger. Yep. Did you want to say more about the factor standards? Uh, I'm gonna have a shameless plug for a case I'm litigating about a factor standard. So the the I believe I ITF um, use these commands called CLI commands. Um, and these are in the standards, but they're not. Everyone doesn't agree in the standards that we're going to use the word boot instead of run. Um, but everyone has been using run since the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And so there is no standard. And then uh, in the case of litigating, it's called Arista for Cisco, also for, for Arista. We're saying that there was this de facto standard that, that existed for a very long time. And then for the first Cisco was first threatened uh, with a more innovative um, competitor selling a faster widget, to use the favorite antitrust terminology, um, turned around and said, I have a copyright on those words. Um, and uh, that copyright case is being litigated right now and is going to trial in November of this year. Um, also pending is Arista's um, antitrust action for switching their their 30 year position on a, on a de facto standard. So to go back to your excellent question, um, does the law, does antitrust law depend on what the, the guidelines that IEEE, IETF um, uh, publishes and we're arguing no, that antitrust law exists regardless of what these standards say or, or don't say. Those SSO guidelines, guidelines, or not guidelines, they're really, it's a contract between, you know, the, the SSO member and the SSO, and then their, their third party beneficiaries are, you know, potential downstream. It's arguably a contract. Well, okay. <laughs> well, here, you know, for antitrust purposes, the question is, are they enforcing the IP because they need to protect the IP, or are they enforcing the IP because they're trying to harm their competitor's ability to compete? And that's really going to be the question in that case. Yeah, or even harming their competitors' ability to compete with, even if that's not their intention. It's as we were talking about earlier today, the you know, intention plays a, a, a fraught role in antitrust. Uh, are there any other questions from the audience? 
I have a, a one fun fact. Um, <laughs> when when enforcing a standard essential patent, or what's really a declared essential patent, um, the the win rate is so low that a lot of um, those SCP patent holders um, realize that this is more than an uphill battle. I mean, patent litigation in general is difficult, but you would think that a patent that you could say, hey, look at the standard. You know, our, our, our patent was declared to the standard, and that infringer practices the standard, so we have to have infringement, right? I mean, it's not that simple, but sometimes that's what the claim charts are like. Um, but no, it is very, very difficult, and Samsung, for example, had a heck of a time trying to enforce those patents against um, Apple. They largely found invalid, um, except for the one at the ITC that, that we found. That's one of, that's one of these uh, contingencies that the DOJ recognized from the IEEE standard, which was anybody that signs on to use the SCP, standard essential patent, they still are able to challenge the validity of it later on, which you know, means that you don't get much horizontal competitors coming in a room and saying, we're all going to agree that this patent is valid, but it's not. It's an interesting note in the tie back to where we started the guidelines. It's, is intellectual property different than any other property? Um, and they say, no, it's, it's not. I'd argue it kind of is. In my, in my, I predominantly do it in my trust, and so they um, disagree. A patent or a copyright is an option to sue on something that you're saying is yours, but it's not yours until the court tells you um, it's yours. And so um, it's this interesting dynamic. All licensing really is, is well, not all of it is, but a lot of it is, in my view, is paying someone to avoid litigation uh, risk, which can be a reverse, <laughs> a reverse payment, which can violate damages. Right. A so, lot of the academic literature uh, about the standard essential patents talks about the fact that a patent is only a probabilistic piece of property on